Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The State of the Union is strong? Remarkably strong? Not too bad? A train wreck? Like everything else in the United States in 2023, with the possible exception of LeBron James, it depends on whom you talk to. President Biden delivered a State of the Union speech last week that drew high marks for poise and verve, touted economic accomplishments like cooling inflation and the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, and seemed to bait the Republican House, especially Marjorie Taylor Greene, into bratty conduct meriting a spanking that Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy obviously lacks the standing to administer. The speech seemed to confirm Biden's plans to run for re-election and to kick off the unofficial stage of his 2024 campaign, notwithstanding some widespread nervousness among Democrats about his age. The House Republicans carried forward with their investigations agenda with a grilling of Twitter for supposedly caving to government pressure and censuring a Hunter Biden story, and a curtain-raising hearing by the Subcommittee on the Weaponization of Government. Both seem to fall far from the mark, and even to breed confusion about just what the mark might be for this new House majority. Contrasting with this political rhetoric was the legal action of Special Counsel Jack Smith, who after months of negotiation with the Mike Pence team dropped a subpoena on the former Vice President, to testify in Smith's probes of possible Trump crimes. To many, the action looked to signal that Smith was well down the road in his investigation of January 6-related crimes as well as Mar-a-Lago, and it set up the likelihood that sooner or later, Pence will have to testify under oath to several one-on-one conversations with Trump in which the former president tried to badger Pence in vulgar terms into breaking the law by refusing to certify Biden's election on January 6th. To dissect the bitter polemics that have captured Washington and helped separate the substance from the theater, we have a terrific group of seasoned analysts and returning Talking Feds guests. And they are Susan Glasser, a staff writer at The New Yorker where she writes the weekly column on life in Washington. She previously served as editor of several Washington-based publications, including Politico Magazine, Foreign Policy, and the Washington Post's Outlook and National News sections. Susan has written several books, including The Divider with Peter Baker, which we covered in a Talking Books episode a few months ago. Susan, welcome back to Talking Feds. Thanks so much for having me. Aaron Blake, a senior political reporter for the Washington Post, where he writes for The Fix. He's one of the country's foremost political reporters. He's covered politics for over 20 years, previously reporting for his hometown, Minneapolis Star Tribune, and The Hill Newspaper. On the evidence, at least of today, he's maybe the hardest working and most prolific reporter in the District of Columbia. The landing page of the Washington Post features three, count them, three Aaron Blake specials. Aaron, thanks as always for joining us on Talking Feds. I always enjoy it. And Carol Lee, 
the White House correspondent for NBC News. She's covered the White House for various organizations, including the Wall Street Journal and Politico, since 2008. She recently served as the president of the White House Correspondents Association, and she appears regularly on TV and radio. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Carol Lee. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right, let's start with the State of the Union, the speech, and the actuality. So President Biden delivered a speech that got generally high marks for substance, but especially for poise and vigor. Let's start here. What was the administration's basic strategy going into the speech, and did they achieve it? Was it a success in their own terms? So the main goal for the White House going into this was they feel like, and the polls bear this out, Americans don't know anything the president's done. They think he hasn't done anything. He's not getting any credit. His own poll numbers are really low. And so they wanted the president to outline all of the things he's done and try to get some credit for it, but at least get the country to understand that he's been working for them and he's trying really hard and he's signed all this legislation. A lot of it is bipartisan. And the other message they wanted to send is that they're going to start to feel some of the benefits of that, that while Americans might not feel it now, they will. So that was one. And two, he wanted to look very presidential. And they were anticipating that it was going to be far more raucous than it's been in the past. And he got that. And so they wanted him to look like the adult in the room. And they feel like he came out looking like the adult in the room. And three, he couldn't screw up because the polls also show that people really question whether he should run, his age, is he with it? It's, you know, all of those things are hanging over this speech as he looks to run for 2024. And from the White House's perspective, they feel that he achieved that, particularly when he was taking slack from Republicans who were reacting to things he was saying on Social Security and Medicare and other things. And he was giving it right back in the moment, ad-libbing in real time and not stumbling. And so that they felt like hit those three boxes that they were trying to hit going into it. So three for three, any dissenters? I'm glad that Carol brought up number two. I wanted to pick up on that a little bit. So after the speech, obviously, we had the interruptions, the jeering, and of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene, perhaps not surprisingly, was the leader of the pack when it came to that. And then the morning after, we saw House Speaker Kevin McCarthy go on Fox News and not really complain about the outburst so much as say that he didn't like how he didn't say he didn't like it, but he said he wished that his party had responded differently because he felt they were being goaded into this. I think if you looked at the speech, if you looked at the prepared remarks, which we were sent at the beginning of the speech, a very heavy theme of bipartisanship, kind of a standard issue speech in some ways. But there were these little touches that were almost like inviting the other side to overreach a little bit. There was kind of a jibe about McConnell being the longest serving Senate leader, then congratulating Schumer for expanding his majority. There was another thing when it came to the national debt. It did seem like there were some things that he was kind of inviting this to happen without him looking like he started it necessarily. And I have to believe that they knew that this kind of thing would ultimately happen and they were pretty prepared for it. So ultimately, I think we got the speech that they probably thought was going to happen. And we got, you know, the big scene where he was arguing with them over Rick Scott's plans for uh, sunsetting federal programs, Social Security, Medicare. And I think ultimately it looked a lot like it seemed like they thought it might. 
Yeah, he set a trap for them and they walked right into it. And what's notable is that it was on terms that he wanted. I thought it was very striking that in a a State of the Union message, Biden spent basically no time talking about many of his administration's priorities that he's talked about previously. He spent about a minute and 40 seconds talking about the war in Ukraine, which was 20% of his speech last year. United States has committed nearly $50 billion to support of Ukraine. It's the largest land war since the end of the Second World War in Europe. And yet he talked about it for a minute and 40 seconds. Perhaps he didn't want Marjorie Taylor Greene to heckle him on that. He wanted her to heckle him on Medicare and Social Security. He talked about China only for another minute and 40 seconds and mentioned the balloon only obliquely. I think that, again, was very purposeful, but very striking for a president who previously has made the theme of his presidency in some respects, defending democracy at home and abroad. He actually didn't talk about defending democracy at home or abroad in this speech. And, you know, so that's the other thing that I would say, Carol made this point, it's an important point. This was a campaign kickoff speech, even though he never said the words I'm running, but it was a highly political speech, it seemed to me, and probably very effective if judged by that standard. What it wasn't was what you might say a more traditional State of the Union message would be, I thought. Yeah, it was long, over an hour, but he didn't tick off accomplishment after accomplishment. David Frum, I think it was, wrote that it was like a fighter goading an opponent into a counterpunch. They must have anticipated this and what the contrast would look like. And what about the specific issue that Carol mentioned that continues to dog him of being old and tired and sometimes doddering? Big audience, 27 million plus. Did he reassure there or dig his way out of that hole? You know, he wasn't super energetic, but he seemed very sort of poised and vigorous in a folksy way to me. He didn't look in any way old or out of it. What do you think about that one issue? I just don't know that he can get out of that box. He's 80 years old and he did two interviews since the State of the Union. He was asked the question in both of them. And he said, you know, watch me. And then he said, well, I don't see that in the polls. And the polls have said things before and they're wrong. And so it's just going to be a question that never goes away, in my view. And they don't have a good answer for it except watch me. And so people are going to watch him. I thought it was a little bit more, not to use a 2016 term, but high energy uh, rather than low energy yep. um, than, mm-hmm. than he usually is. That term is out now? You can't say <laughs> I, Oh, my. I think we can still use it. But <laughs> All right, good. Okay. Certain members of Congress and politicians do not like campaigning. And certain people, when there's a campaign to be had, are kind of energized by it. They like this. Joe Biden has not run a ton of terribly competitive campaigns in his life, but, you know, there is perhaps something to be said for him kind of gearing up for the campaign ahead and being a little bit excited about that, I thought. I thought so, too. Look, there's two aspects to this charge of old, following up on Carol's point. There's old, you know, he lo- his skin sags a little, it's white and thinning hair. But there's also the sense that he's not vigorous in the moment, able to give as much as he gets. And in that respect, but again, in a sort of folksy, avuncular way, I thought he looked pretty decent. All right, let's turn to the opponent that was goaded into the counterpunch. So you actually asked going into it, Susan, in, in your in your trenchant weekly article, would the far-right Republicans once again act up? And we certainly got our answer. You know, it was so far beyond anything we've ever seen in a state of the union. What impact do you see those, especially Marjorie Taylor Greene, but not only, 
but those juvenile outbursts having both in the hall and in the country? Yeah, look, first of all, the incentives for Marjorie Taylor Greene are, are different than the incentives for Kevin McCarthy. And right. what's so notable is that Biden and his advisors essentially signaled for days that they were going to do this in the State of the Union and that he was looking forward to the contrast between his own, you know, presidential leadership and having this this built-in foil of a kind of far-right extremist House Republican majority now. And, you know, by the way, this is a winning formula. It's what many presidents have done after midterm elections in which they lose one or both houses of Congress. This is exactly why Bill Clinton was able to kind of use the jujitsu method right. against Newt Gingrich and his extremist. It really reminded me of that Continental in America State of the Union. Yeah, yeah it, down to the micro-targeting. I think they must have studied very carefully, actually, how the Clinton administration handled the Gingrich revolution right. In 1994. Ron Klain. Ron Klain. Yep. Exactly. And there were also like micro-targeted proposals, which was another staple of the Clinton era, which is to say he loved to use the bully pulpit of the presidency to roll out and make big announcements about little things. And, you know, one of the things I noticed was that Biden was at his most sort of authentic, in part, arguing with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but also when he was just channeling that genuine outrage of, you know, every dad and grandpa everywhere who's like, you know, can you believe those annoying fees, you know, for resorts that aren't even resorts? I love that line. They're not even really resorts, which is totally true, by the way. And it's infuriating to anybody who's not a billionaire. It's infuriating. And, you know, it's that kind of like micro populism that kind of every man from Scranton, obviously, that's a comfort zone for Biden as a politician. But I think it also comes right out of the script for a president who's just come out of a midterm election. And so, you know, he didn't use the language about ultra MAGA Republicans that he used in the run up to the midterm campaign. But I think he used the formula and the playbook of creating in them the foils. And so what's notable is like, so then why, if we knew all this in advance, why were there the hecklers anyways? And I think that's where you see how the incentive structure for House Republicans is just totally different now than it used to be. They want to get on television. They want to get on Twitter. They want to be the person who's attacking Trump. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene came dressed head to toe for the TV cameras in her all white fur trimmed outfit. And why did she do that? Because she planned to do this, even knowing that Biden wanted to use her as a foil. And I, and I just find that to be a real commentary, maybe not on the state of our union, but certainly on the state of our politics right now. To Susan's point on the junk fees, that line that the president then took on the road in Wisconsin the next day got huge applause. People loved it. And that is the kind of thing where, from the White House's perspective, to them, it's very simple. And it's something that resonates with everyone. And if they can put Republicans on their heels on that and say, look, they don't even want you to save money on resort fees, then they feel like they're winning. You have the, the health care issue, which is good for Democrats, and that you can see the president seizing on again. But then you have also these smaller things that you know, the Republicans are trying to say, look, we're not going to cut Social Security and Medicare. We heard Mitch McConnell that he's throwing Rick Scott under the bus and, and all of that. The president's still going to start hammering that. It's a little harder for him to make that argument when Republicans are saying we're not going to do that. 
But he can make the argument on some of those other things that clearly he could say Republicans don't want to do that and they're they're not countering it. I'd also say that when he hit the road, he did do the MAGA Republican thing. He was very presidential in the State of the Union, but then he started dialing it up. He handed out the pamphlets of the plan on Medicare and Social Security. He was naming people by name. He went from saying not every Republicans, not a majority supports cutting Social Security and Medicare to saying a lot of them, tons of them do. And so, you know, you can see how it's like the basis for what he's going to do out there on the trail in the campaign if he ultimately runs, which everyone thinks he will. And let me follow up on that, because you talked about bipartisanship, Aaron, but you could also see it as kind of a jujitsu move to appropriate some uh, segment of the MAGA Republicans by saying, actually, we're the ones we share these goals, but we deliver They talk and do nothing, but it's less about working together and more about siphoning off some of what we used to, even before 2016, call Reagan Republicans to uh, the Democrat camp in 2024, no? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is all part of the, you know, extreme mega Republican rhetoric that he's been using for a while. The Social Security and Medicare thing, I mean, this is one of the most tried and true political wedge issues. And by wedge issue, I mean like 75-25 wedge issue when it comes right. to, to and titanium, right? Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and so what Biden did is he took a plan, Rick Scott's plan, which is in- endorsed by very few Republicans, at least explicitly, and kind of put that out there for them to have to deal with. And the way that he summarized it was accurate. As I think Carol said, he said this wasn't a majority of Republicans. He continued to say it's not even a significant portion he was about to say. But, you know, they couldn't let that lie. They had to push back on this because they're so concerned about it. And by the end of this whole thing, what you had was pretty remarkable, which is a whole bunch of Republicans kind of, you know, thinking about what to do. And he challenged them to say, look, are these two things off the table? And they kind of slowly got up and started clapping. And there was a bipartisan moment to take these two things off the table. And so I think that just reinforces the political jujitsu kind of thing that you mentioned. And then there's Mitch McConnell putting the, the you know, sort of exclamation point on it. And here. they're they're fighting amongst themselves, which the White House loves. You love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit to the dynamic that Susan was referring to. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene says, hey, I'm getting nothing but praise. And in a way, in her ruby red district, which is what she cares about, I guess that's right. But I thought it spoke volumes about Kevin McCarthy. He tried this you know, meek little shush during the event. And then he avoided criticizing her after. And her response was, the speaker supports me and I support the speaker. It seemed like a subtle reminder of who really has the power in the caucus. Am I overreading that, do you think? No, I think that's a really important point. Kevin McCarthy may have taken Nancy Pelosi's seat on the podium in the State of the Union, but he hasn't really taken her chair. He's got the exact same majority, by the way, but he has so much less power because he had to trade away the power to the Marjorie Taylor Greene to his own conference in order to get the nod for speaker. So Pelosi, you know, really had extraordinary powers, actually. It was almost one woman rule in the House under Pelosi because she controlled the Rules Committee. She could single-handedly essentially decide what came to the floor and what didn't. 
McCarthy made two almost potentially fatal moves and concessions to uh, the dissenters within his own party in order to get the job. Number one was to give three seats away on the Rules Committee, basically to people who don't really support him all of the time. And if you don't support you know, if you don't have unilateral control over the Rules Committee, you don't really govern the House of Representatives. And so that's number one. And then the other thing that he did was he agreed to go back to a situation where any one member of Congress can file a discharge position and motion to vacate the chair and seek to topple him as the speaker. And this is exactly how essentially John Boehner, the previous Republican speaker, threw up his hands in disgust and said, forget it. Nancy Pelosi, when they Democrats won back the majority, said, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're going to fix this for you guys and actually change the threshold from just one vote. You would think that was the one rules change that Kevin McCarthy would have been most desperate to keep and to not trade away. And yet in the end, Matt Gates and, and and the others forced him to trade that way. And so I think it's a really important point. I know it sounds maybe like inside baseball to people, but the bottom line is that Kevin McCarthy is not the kind of hyper-empowered, almost dictatorial speaker that we've seen in recent years. And what it really means is that functionally speaking, nobody knows if the House is even going to do the bare minimum of what is required to keep the government open, functioning, and funded. And even that is an open question because the Marjorie Taylor Greens actually have almost as much power as the Kevin McCarthy's. One last thing here on you know this $64,000 question that Carol brought up. Why can't Biden make the sale? All right, I mean, we identified this old issue, but, you know, when he touts his record and just kind of tallies it up, it is pretty damn impressive, right? All the kinds of numbers. And yet people are either unaware of it or even if aware of it, his poll numbers are kind of abysmal. They're Trumpian, you could say. What can he do to get out of that box? Or is it just that's the hand he's been dealt somehow? Well, what you hear from the White House on that, whenever you bring this up, is they just say it's inflation. In the beginning of the administration, Mm. when he was struggling, it was COVID. That was the thing that if they could get rid of one thing, it would be COVID. That's gone. Now it's inflation. And that's what they continue to point to. And their theory of the case is that once inflation, if inflation starts to go down in a way that people feel it, then that'll bear out in the polls. But the other thing I would say is that Joe Biden is never, somebody I was talking to or someone wrote this, he's not the guy you're going to put on a t-shirt. No one's running around like going to his rallies and getting excited. And so that's always been something that he's had to try to compensate for. And so that's partly what you're seeing when you hear there's just not excitement about him. He's not a figure in that way that he can't change. It's not going to change. He's been around for decades, but the white house feels like if inflation does change, then some of his fortunes as they bear out in the polls will also change. I think that there's also a little bit of a flip side to the, you know, people not putting the guy on t-shirts and and walking around, which is that his critics aren't necessarily as hardened against him either. So, you know, when with Donald Trump for four years, you had 40% of the country that was very unfavorable, another 10 plus-ish percent that generally didn't like him. I think with, with Biden, you have, even within the Democratic Party, the support is soft, but it's not like they hate the guy necessarily. And so I think the White House could make an argument, a credible one, that 
he's a good candidate for them in 2024, despite the base's concerns about him, just because he doesn't engender those kinds of very passionate feelings, not for, but also not necessarily against. I mean, I would say almost two contradictory things here. Like, number one, Biden's strongest argument is who he's running against. And, you know, as my colleague Jane Rare said to me this morning, Biden loves to use this line, and it's a good line. I'm not running against God Almighty here. It's me versus <laughs> the opposition. And he feels like he's the guy. He beat Donald Trump before. You know, on some level, he's running because Trump is running again. And there is the real threat of that. Nothing has united Democratic voters and independent voters more over the last couple election cycles than what, you know, the prospect of another Trump term would mean for the country. So if the election is Trump versus Biden, and it's about Trump, then that presumably benefits Biden. But I do think there's also the opposite argument, which can also be equally made, which is to say they may be right about COVID. They may be right about inflation. Uh, There's always going to be some issue. But the issue that they don't want to talk about is the one where Biden is really making kind of a reckless choice here. And he's already the oldest president that the U.S. has ever had at age 80. And this isn't so much a discussion about where he's at right now. I think your point is very well taken, Harry. You know, we watched the speech and he was certainly in control and in command and quick on his feet. And it was a confident delivery. There was no indication of any age-related impairment there. But it's not about that. It's about the fact that Biden would be 86 years old at the end of his second term. And anyone who has had a father or a grandfather, we are talking the far end of the actuarial tables here. And I've seen it in my own family, in my own life. You know, you can go downhill. Literally, Biden could be a vigorous, healthy, in-command president. And then three months later, he's gone. And that is increasing a risk factor at a moment in time when there are not only considerable fissures and threats inside the United States, but we are dealing with the biggest land war in Europe since the end of World War II. We are dealing with a serious and escalating competition with China. So I just think it's adding risk to the American public. That's the reason why they're not happy with Biden. It's not about COVID. Why do we just add he's going to get the physical, his physical next week? And that is another hump that they want to get over. No one's anticipating some major thing, but it is interesting that to Susan's point, you have a president who's waiting for his physical as one of the things he needs to get through before he might announce running for re-election. That's just not a typical thing. So first, I think this does reinforce that in a way, the State of the Union was kind of the unofficial starting point for the campaign. Aaron actually made a parallel point to Susan's point about about I'm not running against God vis-a-vis the Democrats, because all the misgivings about Biden wane when you actually consider the alternatives. Well, what about 91-year-old Bernie Sanders? What about very unpopular Kamala Harris? How do you get there from here? And when you actually size him up against the likely alternatives, as he sort of did, I think in 2020, when his whole strategy was kind of making the story not about him staying in his basement during COVID years, recall, and that worked to his advantage. Just one quick political follow-up, though. It does seem to me that he was making a play for sort of blue-collar Democrats and people who are maybe the reasonable side of the MAGA coalition. What's your sense of how progressives in the party both assess the speech, but the distinct prospect that's coming 
that at least on the campaign side, they're going to be a little bit thrown to the side. And maybe Ron Klain, who was very good at keeping everyone together, his departure aggravates that some. But do you have the beginnings, stirrings of discontent among the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Well, I would mention two things that also were not really emphasized in the speech that go to your question. Number one, he actually spent even less time talking about abortion and you know what it yeah. means to be in a post-Roe versus Wade world, even though this is his first State of the Union speech since that Supreme Court decision. He spent about 45 seconds, I think, on that versus at least a minute you know, on Ukraine. You know, that was a curious omission. They even had uh, some guests up there with First Lady Jill Biden, including a woman who nearly died in Texas as a, arguably as a direct result of this decision. He didn't call them out. He didn't really focus on it. And I think especially given the relative importance of this issue in rallying Democratic voters to come to the polls in the midterm elections in the fall, it seemed like a weird omission, especially because it was in the context of an overall very political and very campaign-oriented speech. So that's one thing. And then I think he didn't really talk very much about issues that are of concern to younger voters. Obviously, the demographic who's watching the State of the Union skews old, and that may have been even more true this year. But, you know, he didn't mention his own administration's student debt relief program. He didn't really focus very much on climate change, except in a, you know, kind of I've gotten stuff done context. And so I found that to be notable from the point of view of both the progressive coalition and also just more generally, you know, around younger voters who seem to be also among the demographic that is most concerned that, you know, there's an 80-year-old president of the United States right now who's running for re-election. That's a great point because lack of talking about abortion really angered progressives. And there was some heat that was taken for that. I think from the White House's perspective, he wants to be in the middle. He's in the middle. He laid out, he made a case for himself in the middle and he yeah. is wanting to focus on the economy. And they think that's what's ultimately going to get him to win. And if it's someone like Donald Trump, those voters will show up anyways. And that's risky historically, if you look at the way that Democrats get energized, but that's the play they made, at least in that space. Yeah, I thought that was really manifest. Carol, I totally agree. But what's amazing about that is that Biden, maybe because of his own personal squeamishness, I don't know. It's not the middle. 60% of Americans are supportive of abortion rights and concerned about uh, the question of reproductive freedom. I mean, it's not a sort of 50-50 issue. Ooh, I'm afraid to talk about that. I mean, that to me has like the feel of a politician from the past, not a politician who's living in this present moment where it's not an academic debate we're having anymore. You know, the Supreme Court has gotten rid of this. Half the country is potentially a no-go zone for young women who are facing actual huge problems. And not just, by the way, if they want to seek an abortion because of an out-of-wedlock teen pregnancy. I mean, we're talking about middle-class married American moms who, you know, have an ectopic pregnancy, potentially having their own reproductive health seriously compromised by the laws in many states in this country right now. And it was just clearly an important factor just in 2022. All right, let's just spend two minutes on the other guys. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, been in in the governor for about a blink of an eye. They chose her and she delivered. I want to try to be objective here, but it was like this fever dream of culture wars and the like. They chose her. Does that show what direction the party has chosen to go in 2024? 
I think that the choice of, you know, a Southern governor period is not something that we would have necessarily seen right. after the right. 2012 election. Right. And we had the autopsy and it's certainly interesting from a perspective of this is a former White House spokesperson in the Trump administration. I think that they liked some of the things, they being the party, liked some of the things that she was doing early in her tenure when it comes to, you know, taking the word Latinx out of Arkansas state government. The fact that she's young, I think it was was part of the calculus here, the contrast to Biden that she talked about. But, you know, usually you you have like a Glenn Youngkin up there or something like that. And I thought that was a really interesting decision that they made. I mean, I honestly listened to it and it's not just the echoes it had of Trump, but just like half the sentences were like, what is she talking about? I mean, I felt that objectively, but maybe my colors are are going through. It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news. And the concept today is the Hyde Amendment. People generally know that in the wake of the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs overruling Roe versus Wade and a series of draconian state laws restricting abortions that followed, the federal government has tried to push back to permit reproductive health procedures to continue. But not everyone is aware that there's a very strict regulation in federal law that works special hardship to poor women and women of color. It's known as the Hyde Amendment. It has been in place since 1977, and it restricts the use of federal money to pay for abortion procedures or to pay for health insurance coverage that includes abortion. And to explain that concept, I'm very pleased to welcome Judy Greer, a prolific film and television actress. She's known for her roles in hit comedy series like The Big Bang Theory, Arrested Development. She's so delightful in Arrested Development. Two and a Half Men, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You can also see her in the films The Descendants, Where'd You Go Bernadette, 13 Going on 30, Love and Other Drugs, and Jurassic World, among many others. She made her directorial debut in 2017 with the film A Happening of Monumental Proportions. So I give you Judy Greer on the Hyde Amendment. Even after the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization overruling Roe v. Wade, Reproductive health procedures, including abortion, are still legal under federal law and in many states. Nevertheless, federal law limits women's ability to exercise that right by strictly restricting government health care coverage for abortions. This limitation, known as the Hyde Amendment, has existed in federal law since the late 1970s. The Hyde Amendment restricts the use of federal money to pay for abortion procedures or to pay for health insurance coverage that includes abortion. It is named for Henry Hyde, a longtime Republican congressman from Illinois. It takes the form of a temporary rider to the annual Appropriations for the Department of Health and Human Services that was first added in 1977 and has been renewed by Congress every year since. The provision prohibits the expenditure of covered funds for any abortion or to provide health benefits coverage that includes abortion. However, in its current form, the Hyde Amendment permits coverage of abortions in the case of rape or incest, or where a woman would be in danger of death if an abortion is not performed. 
The initial version of the amendment included only the exception for the life of the patient, and through the years, the scope of the exceptions has expanded and contracted. The Hyde Amendment restricts access to abortions for patients covered by Medicaid, Medicare, the Indian Health Service, and CHIPS, the Children's Health Insurance Program. Moreover, similar language restricts funding under the military's TRICARE program, federal prisons, the Peace Corps, and the Federal Employees' Health Benefits Program. Finally, the Affordable Care Act, ACA, also known as Obamacare, includes a similar restriction on private health insurance when the government provides a subsidy to the purchaser. However, because Medicaid is a joint program of the federal and state governments, 16 states have chosen to provide coverage for reproductive health that includes abortions beyond the Hyde Amendment limitations. For Talking Feds, I'm Judy Greer. Thank you, Judy Greer, for explaining the Hyde Amendment. You can see Judy on her latest project, White House Plumbers, soon to be streaming on HBO. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we discuss adding the right amount of water to a glass of whiskey without turning it into a whiskey river. The thought of adding water to any golden brown whiskey might bring tears to the eyes of some whiskey drinkers. But for others, adding a few drops of water to your glass has its merits and actually improves and enhances the flavor. The phrase open up refers to the release of the extra flavor you taste by adding those drops of water. And here's a little bit of science that helps reinforce that theory. When water is added to whiskey, it releases the guaiacol, which is partially responsible for the smoky and spicy flavor. When guaiacol is released, it rises to the surface so the aromas are more easily noticeable, allowing your palate to experience the smell and flavor that imparts on the drink. And while there's really no right or wrong way, some say adding a splash of water brings out the best in your glass of whiskey. Of course, going overboard with the water has diminishing returns, watering down the whiskey and proving once again that moderation almost always wins. So the next time you're thirsting for a little experimenting of your own, stop into your local Total Wine & More for a whiskey selection that suits every budget. And that's a scientific fact. So find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. So we got our first good look at the investigative agenda of the Republican House majority. Uh, we had the hearing over Hunter Biden's laptop, of course, followed by the first hearing on of the uh, subcommittee on weaponization of the government. We're going to see a lot more of Biden, but they really seem to have in mind making a big demonstration that the government had pushed Twitter to censor something that was unfavorable uh, to him. And just everybody said one after the other, no, uh, no, that didn't happen. They must have known they were going to get that response, but did they want that anyway, or did it just fall flat and they were caught by surprise? It's hard to believe they would have been caught by surprise. I, right. I mean, the big claim here is that the FBI in some way was involved in the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story before the 2020 election. James Comer, the chairman of the Oversight Committee, Jim Jordan, the chairman of the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, 
have said this flatly that the FBI was involved in this in some way. And not only did all of these ex-Twitter executives who testified contradict that in pretty blunt fashion, including from Jim Baker, the whole thing here got started with the Twitter files, these journalists who were handpicked to sort through these internal documents at Twitter. And Matt Taibbi, who is one of the people who wrote about this in the first place, said that he has seen no role from the federal government in the suppression of this story. So, you know, it becomes a situation where, where is this going to lead and where do they think this is going to lead? And the fact that they're already declaring this to have happened, despite the lack of evidence, I think is an inauspicious sign, to put it lightly. And then lastly, the the thing that I thought was really interesting is, and, and I don't know how many people noticed this, but Congressman David Joyce, who is a conservative, but kind of an establishment-oriented right. one from Ohio, ally of McCarthy, went on CNN and basically said, look, you guys doing these hearings, you should probably make sure that you actually prove something with these. <laughs> if, you're, if you're going to call into question the legitimacy of our government, I don't know if that was coming from McCarthy necessarily, but I thought it was an interesting little warning signal that was mixed into all this uh, and the decision that he made to go on CNN and say that kind of thing, because it really did kind of cast a light on the the lack of substantiation of the central claim of these hearings. Yeah, although I would say that the problem is, is that we're still judging these hearings as if they're on the level and that there's a goal of fact finding and you know a sort of a more conventional investigative thing. I mean, look, come on. The name of this subcommittee is the subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. The conclusion is baked into this. I've learned a lot from observing the use of these platforms and the bully pulpit over the course of the Trump presidency and the two years beyond it. The implanting of fake news and information and narratives. It didn't start on January 6th, 2020, or on November 3rd, 2020, for that matter. This has become uh, increasingly a part of the playbook. And I just think back to the opening of Trump's first impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives. And day one of those hearings, the Democrats are talking, you know, okay, we're going to have these witnesses. We're going to lay out this case about Trump and the manipulation and the use misuse of U.S. aid to Ukraine as a tool to get what he wanted politically. And then Devin Nunez, the Republican ranking member, started to talk. I literally couldn't understand what he's saying. He was talking about naked pictures of Donald Trump and Ukraine and the server and all of this. Like, if you had not been following in great detail, not just Fox News, but the far corners of the conspiracy-minded internet. I mean, this has an element of, you know, the QAnon conspiracy, the big lie about the 2020 election. I think that we better can understand what's happening with these hearings in Congress, in the House right now, by looking at it in the context of how Trump and his allies, these same people, by the way, implanted lies about the 2020 election in the minds of millions of Americans. To me, this seems like a very comparable exercise that's not about proving the truth any more than, you know, it was true to say that the Dominion voting system somehow, you know, were being controlled and manipulated. They're using the platform of government now to seed misinformation and disinformation. So I just I feel like we can't judge it on the level like this. The point of the hearing was the hearing to have the hearing. And that was it. And it was performative in the sense that everybody got their clip. Everyone who had something to say got the clip. They had something to go back home they, with. They said what they wanted to say, and it was all on tape. And 
what is interesting about it is the choice to start with something like that, because those hearings, they don't scare the White House. They think that actually fuels their argument that it's Biden versus the crazies. And there is legitimate oversight to do on this administration. The thing the White House fears is a big look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know, there's probably some stuff there that the president's not going to like. And so to start with this, from the White House and the administration's perspective, they like it. And you saw they punched back very aggressively on it, and they're ready to fight. And these are not the kind of hearings that are making them worry over there. And polls show people are on their side as far as the judgment of the weaponization committee. And I just want to draw a contrast, even aside from the politics, with what Susan was talking about before with the micro-targeting. Both Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the hearing on Thursday, all the Republican stuff, it wasn't just that it was out there. It was also, I just think objectively, very hard to follow. It was convoluted, and it felt like you really had to have your QAnon scorecard lineup to even know what the heck they're talking about. And if that's meant to make general inroads among the American public rather than to please a slice of the you know MAGA faithful, it strikes me as a bad strategy just rhetorically. Let me just follow up on the one point I just made, because Aaron, you did write a piece about how this is playing with the public, the whole weaponization agenda. Can you just give us your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I think the, the Washington Post and ABC News do our regular polling, and yeah. I think this might have been the first uh, pollster that asked a question about this new weaponization committee, and it found that 36% of people thought that this was a legitimate committee versus 56% who said that this was probably just an effort to score political points. And I thought it was interesting to compare that to some of these things that this committee and, and the oversight committee are going to look into, whether it's social media censorship the origins of the Russian investigation, January 6th stuff, all of these various things. If you ask a similar question, and pollsters have over the years, most of them were viewed as legitimate investigations. American people didn't really have questions about these things. And usually it's about a you know small minority to 40%. Clearly, this committee is seeking to appeal to that 40%. And that gets back to the, the point Susan made about the incentive structure that exists in the Republican Party right now. But I thought it was really interesting that at the outset of, of this committee, that there was such skepticism that there was really any there there when it comes to a sizable portion of the country. And, and you know, that matters. Base service is one thing, but the middle of the country determines the elections increasingly, even if it's a much smaller portion of, of the country than other portions. And just as a matter of strategy and professionalism, compare, say, the January 6th committee. I think they're at real risk, are the Republicans, of having people tune out by starting with these hearings that are really very unfocused. And then even as they get to what all three of you have you know, averred are legitimate subjects of oversight, people will just see it as same old Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, so... Switching gears, Jack Smith dropped a subpoena on former Vice President Mike Pence last week. How big a deal? It seems like this is, the way it's being read is that this is a sign that things may be getting towards the end, at least on the January yeah. 6th portion of the program, because he subpoenaed lower level people. He subpoenaed Robert O'Brien, the former National Security Advisor. And so... It's seen as a big deal. There was this was a negotiation for a while, and they 
came to some sort of agreement. What it's going to look like, I don't, I think they're still sorting that out. I don't think Pence is too happy about it, but he's talked publicly enough about it that it's going to be a difficult thing for him to exert too much executive privilege. But, you know, there's a lot of frustration that this has taken so long. I know there's frustration within the administration, within the Justice Department, and certainly among Democrats who want to see this when it comes to former President Trump be wrapped up quickly. This is being read as a sign that that could indeed be what's happening here. It's not clear to me that this was an agreement. You're right. It's not. It may well have been months of negotiation and Jack Smith, in contrast to, say, Bob Mueller, that said, like, here we go, pal, You uh, enough of this. And that, that would say a lot about Jack Smith. I think that's a really important point, especially because, you know, Mike Pence is one of a huge line of Trump administration officials who've, you know, published their memoirs, gone on TV endlessly talking about this and yet refused to cooperate and to provide testimony uh, to the investigations of what remains an extraordinary moment in American history. And I just I would point out we don't know where Jack Smith is at or what's going to happen as far as January 6th and Trump goes. But Pence is a crucial witness because Donald Trump was personally twisting his arm. And that, I think, is remarkable. Having like really tried to dive into this for our book, The Divider, but without some of this testimony public at the time, you come down to, even with what we already know, a remarkable record, even of what's already public, about how it was the president personally persisting and insisting on going past the boundaries that even the lawyers, even the out there fringe lawyers like John Eastman were saying, wait a minute, well, okay, you know, this is an untested legal theory, sir. Even John Eastman is telling him, well, you know, the Supreme Court's probably going to throw this out (laughs) nine to zero if it ever got there. This idea on January 6th that the vice president could personally essentially overturn the results of the election and, and substitute his own judgment. And yet Trump basically disregarded not only the advice of the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone at this time, but also even some of the outsiders who were pretty fringy characters that were brought in. And so Pence, I think, is a crucial witness here. Again, who knows, right? This is not a transparent process, to say the least. But I do find him to be very significant. And I I also think Carol's point is very well taken. You don't subpoena the former vice president in the early stages of an investigation. So it does seem like they're pretty far down in terms of what they, they know what they want from Pence. You know, one thing I've been thinking about is, I'm going to ask the question and the answer is going to seem obvious, but how motivated of a witness could Pence ultimately be? You know, there are still discussions over executive privilege, things like that. Apparently, there's been a lot of back and forth over the last several months trying to get this done on a voluntary basis rather than having to use a subpoena. You know, Pence at one point floated the idea that he might testify to the January 6th committee, or at least said that he would think about it in a way that kind of felt trial balloony a little bit. I think that he had more of a reason to resist that than he would necessarily to resist this because that committee was generally run by Democrats. Those clips would be used in these hearings in ways that he may not eventually like. But this is a guy who was endangered by what happened that day, has said some things that are somewhat harsh about what happened that day and and Donald Trump's actions in the lead up to it. This is a guy who has an interest in what happens to Donald Trump over the next two years, given he's apparently looking at running for president. 
And this is potentially a good way to get some things out there that might damage Trump politically. Certainly anybody who would deign to snitch on Donald Trump, you think real hard about that, given what we've seen in the last six, seven years here. But this is a, a process that is handled behind closed doors and we don't see as much of it. And I think it presents some different dynamics than we necessarily saw from the January 6th committee, which Pence decided that he was not going to cooperate with. Yeah, as a matter of game theory, I think it's really rich. Let me just say a few things as a lawyer and former prosecutor. First, yes, he's made these statements, but in his Mealy Pence way, you know, the president was reckless. That's not going to cut it in the grand jury. What were the words that the president uh, said? And th it's those discussions, the one-on-ones that he most needs. And that, that dovetails with the law because the law is pretty clear. There's four or five levels of inquiry and they all cut against him. But to cut to the chase, if there's a pending criminal inquiry and they can't get the information any other way, even if he could invoke it as a vice president, or even if Trump could as a former president, even if it wasn't waived, when you get to the actual substance of the claim, he's going to lose. They're going to have to, at one point or another, testify. And now think about it. You're him. Would you rather have it now, get it out of the way uh, before your campaign starts? Or would you rather have this eight-month or whatever appellate process where this is kind of hovering over you? Maybe it comes out in the middle of the campaign. And then from Trump's point of view, because Trump potentially could raise this himself. He has standing for executive privilege. He, again, would lose. But how does he want it? And, of course, Pence pretends to be on Trump's side here. And as Aaron suggests, it's not at all clear he is. It's a very kind of rich chess uh, problem, it seems to me. It is. And it especially is when you throw in the politics of it, which you can't tease out of it and the 2024 dynamic where, to your point, if you're Pence, you kind of do. I mean, he and Biden actually are having parallel experiences to some extent. Right. You know, they both would like to get special counsel interviews, no doubt, before getting deep into 2024. And so for Pence, it's tough because even politically, you know, he kind of is in this space where he doesn't really have a home in the 2024, like what's his lane and he can't distance from Trump, but he isn't Trump. And so it's just fraught for him. It's a great point. All right. Well, we'll have much more to come on this one. We're about out of time. I'm sad to say only a couple minutes for our final Talking Five feature where we serve up a question and we all have to answer in five words or fewer. So we're taping this on Friday and another balloon apparently was uh, shot down this morning. So uh, the question is, when and where can we get our own Chinese balloons? Click on Amazon. Right, there you go. <laughs> I'm going to give people some homework and they can do some Googling here. Yeah. Uh, read Philip Bump's story. He actually kind of wrote something about this, so I would point people in that direction. That's great. Yeah. Carol? I'd go to Party City. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say this is, I actually haven't thought of this. Um, I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> we are out of time. Thank you very much to Susan, Carol, and Aaron. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. 
You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. On Friday, we posted a very special one-on-one -on -one conversation with Rachel Maddow about domestic extremism and her podcast, Ultra, that is really worth checking out. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with constitutional law professor Michael Dorff about a constitutional path for President Biden to resist the House Democrat efforts to ignite a debt ceiling crisis. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to Judy Greer for explaining the Hyde Amendment. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.